Welcome to episode seven of the Afterward, our series of conversations on books, reading, and the church. Here at the Westminster Bookstore, we believe that books play a profound role in our, our Christian lives. So whether you're a, a pastor uh, preparing a sermon or a, a small group leader wanting uh, a great book to read uh, in, your, in your group, or maybe you're a grandparent uh, looking for an edifying bedtime story to read to your grandkids. Uh, we are we're here to serve you. We started the afterward because we wanted to share with you a little bit about the process behind what makes a, a good book great and introduce you to some of our favorite authors. Tonight, uh, our host, Johnny Gibson, will be talking with Mark Dever uh, for a special episode on preaching. Mark Dever is the senior pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist Church and the president of Nine Marks Ministry. So we're, we're delighted to have uh, Mark joining us tonight. Uh, with that, by way of introduction, let me uh, turn it over to Johnny with, with a question. Johnny, when was it that you preached your first sermon? Uh, believe it or not, it was when I was about 17 or 18. Um, in uh, Northern Ireland and Carrick Fergus Gospels Hall, Little Brethren Assembly. Um, I was brought up in the Christian Brethren. And uh, if you were a bloke and you could speak on your feet, they got you preaching fairly early on. So I preached on the three trees in the Bible, uh, the tree of life um, or tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, the cross, and then the tree of life in the book of Revelation. But uh, I think there was a lot of dispensationalism thrown in in between. So, uh, so that was my first uh, attempt at preaching a sermon. Uh, Mark, what about you? What, what age were you when you preached your first sermon? Similar, probably 15 or 16 at the Church of the Nazarene up the street from our house. The pastor's daughter was in my class at school. And when she heard that I you know, was a Christian and maybe was called to preach, she told her dad, and he said, well, have him come up, and so I did a Wednesday night for him, I think, preached on 1 Corinthians 13. Okay, and uh, were you brought up in a preacher's home or a Christian home? Uh, sort of nominal Christian. Uh, there was some church attendance at the at a, a Southern Baptist church. Mm -hmm. well, where in America were you brought up? In Kentucky. Okay, you don't sound like you're from the South. You don't sound like you're from England. <laughs> That's right. Um, so what uh, what drew you into ministry then? Uh, uh, I think I always had a concern for what seemed most important. And as somebody who had been an agnostic and became a Christian, I was very interested in talking to non-Christians about the gospel. I was always... Uh, good on my feet with people, and so I was happy to talk to any group, any time, about anything, and that kind of naturally flowed over to my being a Christian, and I got opportunities to speak, and I would take them, and so I was not aiming toward ministry per se, I was aiming toward being a lawyer and going and being a politician, hmm. uh, but, uh, and then ultimately that got changed into being a professor, went to seminary and two seminaries and then uh, university and getting a PhD in order to teach. And then it was after I'd done all that, uh, that this church in DC called me to be their pastor. And it was actually that when I'm in my thirties that resolved the sort of direction of my life rather than going 
to law school and politics, I would go into ministry. Hmm. So um, uh, you're raised in a nominal Christian home. So what was your sort of church background once you were converted and doing some of this preaching early on? Uh, just going to the local Southern Baptist church that my family had gone to. Uh, yeah. And uh, what were the two seminaries that you said you studied Gordon at? Con Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary from 82 to 86 and the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, 86 to 87. And so during those years at seminary, did you were you clear about a call to ministry that you wanted to pursue in the future? You said there, you know, I, it was really I, in your I, 30s that you decided not law, not politics, but actually ministry. Yeah. No, that's confusing. I was confusing there. I, it was in my early 20s when I decided to go to seminary. But immediately when I got there, I was kind of redirected through a conversation really before this class even started in the fall with a, an older prophet, Gordon Conwell, toward teaching. And so it was teaching that was uppermost in my mind throughout my MDiv, my THM, and my PhD. So that's what I was aiming at doing. Okay, so hence the, hence why you ended up in Cambridge doing a PhD. Okay, and uh, what area of study was your PhD in? Richard Sibbs. Okay, so church history. Uh, historical theology, yeah, yeah. Okay, and uh, as a pastor now, looking back, what benefits do you think there are for pastors in reading church history and historical theology? What benefits for the ministry are there in focusing in on that kind of area of study? Having conversations with people in different situations than you are about what God's revealed in his word, uh, becoming a part of a longer conversation about uh, baptism, about the Lord's Supper, about church government, about predestination, about salvation, about exclusivism, about the Trinity, about, you know, so many things, just realizing not only the issues that might dominate our horizon of thought in the 21st century, but talking with people sort of down the centuries and listening to them. Hmm. And As uh, we, all, we all look at the Bible together. Yeah. And so what area of SIBs were you looking at? Uh, I really, I did kind of parallel things. I, I looked at his life historically uh, because there had not been much done on Sibs in a critical sense. And then I looked at his theology because uh, he had been a bit player in R.T. Kendall's terrible thesis, uh, Calvin and the Calvinists, that hmm. OUP irresponsibly published hmm. uh, after the Oxford uh, University irresponsibly gave Kendall a, a doctorate for that thesis. Yeah, yeah. And um, did you publish this uh, PhD on SIBS? Uh, yes, I did. I published it with Mercer University Press, and it actually stayed in print for 20 years, which is not bad for dissertation. It looked something like this back when copies were available. Okay. Now, yeah. rumor, rumor has it that I myself may have boxes of these unsold that Mercer simply gave me out of pity when they sort of removed it from their catalog recently, but that would just be rumors. But I mean, these these books do exist. They can be had for princely sums on Amazon, and yes, or yes. for fee maybe if the author just contacts me with a you know suffocatingly encouraging letter or plain call. And then Ligonier, a few years ago when they heard it was going out of print, said, "Hey, can we grab it and sort of uh, popularize it a bit?" And that's what this is. They had okay. some editors editors who worked on it, and then I, yeah, I kind of went back and forth with the editors, and this is a, a sort of somewhat slimmed down version of this. 
Okay. That's the thing about PhDs, isn't it? You put uh, three, four years into it, and then they print about 80 copies. That's what they did with mine. And then they have 75 left over. Right, yeah. Well, I, I have eight. I, they printed 80, and each year I get my royalty statement. It says we sold three this year. I'm like, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> well, you know, as long as mom gets older, she can lose her copy and she needs another one. Amen. Exactly. Exactly. I remember uh, Ray Ortland telling me that uh, he did his PhD in Aberdeen on some one of the Psalms. And he went back about 20, 30 years later and he thought, I'll just ask them you know, to get my PhD out of the library and see how many people have ever checked it out. And uh, he, he realized that he was the first person to ever check out his PhD 30, 30 years later. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the edification of his own soul of studying God's word. And that's that's awesome. Yeah. So. Well, just just on that, it, you know, we're joking in a sense about how you put all this work into a PhD. But in a way, because they're so narrow and in depth on a particular person or part of the Bible, not many people do actually read them. But what did you learn from how to read well and how to write well during your PhD studies? I don't know that I learned much on how to write well. I mean, maybe uh, continued discipline with outlines. As far as read well, I mean, I certainly got very accustomed to reading late 16th century, early 17th century prose. I was already pretty familiar with that as a fan of the Puritans, uh, but I, I got more familiar with that. I think I benefited from living in more patient intellectual times for a few years. So uh, the, the ability to slow down and meditate on something, to walk by something more slowly than I feel not capable of doing. Uh, so there were cognitive and spiritual benefits of sort of living in a different time mentally for uh, a few years. Yeah. And uh, since that book on Richard Sibbs, what other books have you published? Well, there's the book on Richard Sibbs, which, uh, you know, I'm sure you could find copies of uh, on Amazon or, uh, you know, someplace. Um, oh, other things. Uh, most everything else I've done has been just copies of my sermons people have taken and published. So Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, uh, Message of the New Testament, Message of the Old Testament. Um, my, my sermons on First Corinthians, um, uh, Gospel and Personal Evangelism, uh, Deliberate Church, The Compelling Community, um, yeah, um, other things. Yeah, so mo most of your books since then, popular level, have really, as you say, been sermons put into print. Do you, as you prepare the sermon I and write the sermon? I appreciate calling them popular level. I'm not sure they've ever really lived up to that, but sure, we, we'll call them popular level because it makes me feel like I'm hanging out with the cool kids. Right, right. I just mean they're they're um, they're not academic pieces that only the uh, intellectuals are reading. They're they're beneficial for all Christians, you know. One would hope. Yeah. Um, so as you write your sermons, do you write with a view that these one days might turn into a book, or do you write your sermons for sermons and then rework the material? to make it into a book? The latter. Okay. And uh, what's that process like for you? Is that enjoyable or is that uh, something you don't enjoy? Uh, most of my sermons I have manuscripts of in a room right next to me and they're, they're ready for whenever I'm dead and anybody wants to look at them and otherwise they could be thrown out. No, I, I have no ambition to publish my sermons. Right. Yeah. In, in ones of them who found their way into print, there'll be a story how they got there. Okay. 
Okay. Um, what's been your best selling book? And I'm not asking for numbers, but just what's been the book that's had the biggest impact, do you think, in people's lives and in the church? I think the best selling one right now, maybe a little book I did on discipling, just called Discipling, that, uh, you know, as I get numbers from Crossway, it sells pretty well. I assume over the years it's been nine marks of a healthy church. Mm. Yeah. And uh, do you want to tell us a wee bit about that ministry? I know maybe some of our listeners may be familiar with it, but there'll be others who aren't. They might have yeah. heard of it, but what, what's the goal and purpose behind it? It's uh, simply trying to be uh, a kind of platform for a cooperative of pastors to help each other through writing articles uh, and producing resources uh, that will encourage expositional preaching, biblical theology, uh, biblical understanding of the gospel of conversion, of evangelism, of membership, of discipleship, of uh, church discipline, and of church leadership. And uh, do you you have a conference that you you uh, put on? I think once a year. Um, but uh, you also have little um, what would we call it fraternals or getaways as pastors where they can just get together. Uh, can you chat about that and why you think that's important? Um, I think I know what you're referring to, Johnny. You're referring to that secret meeting in Baltimore that we never talk about in public. Right. Yeah. Uh, I think what I'll turn this to is the fact that we have what we call weekenders at our church three times a year yeah. uh, for pastors. We have about 150 pastors come from around the country and a bit beyond. Uh, and then we have had, and there are continuing conferences at various schools, Midwestern Seminary, Southeastern Seminary, Cedarville. Uh, we have conferences. Uh, we, I think we've done a nine March conference at Westminster before. We we do them various places around the country. We have first five years conferences where we have four or five different places where we've done a conference concentrated on folks who are in their first years of ministry. Um, yeah, but there's not there's not a national conference per se. Okay, okay. And the the weekenders is that part of Nine Marks, or is that just your local church that puts on something like that? Nine Marks with our local church kind of hosting, but it's very much Nine Marks that does that. Yeah, give us a brief overview of what that weekend involves for people who come along to it. Thursday night they sit in on an elders meeting, so they watch a real elders meeting go on. Uh, Friday and Saturday are full of all kinds of lectures including Friday night, seeing a real membership class, what it looks like. Um, I'm involved somewhat on Friday morning. Uh, I will recount uh, what uh, this revitalization, as it's often called, was like here at our particular church. Saturday night, I'll give a lecture on preaching. Saturday afternoon, they have free. Uh, they select various seminars to go to on Friday afternoon and Saturday morning. Sunday, they're at church all day at our core seminars, our Sunday morning service. They go to lunch for pastors. With various staff members uh, and lay pastors' houses. Stay come to the evening service. They sit through a members' meeting because we always have it on a weekend. We have a members' meeting. Uh, and then we have a final session on Monday morning. Okay. And what are you trying to achieve by a weekend like that? What's your goal as a pastor bringing people in for those kind of meetings? We're trying to get pastors to think uh, biblically about their local church. So we want them, we give them a model to look at. They might see some things they like, some things they don't like. Uh, but then if they come with some of the other staff or some of their other elders, they can then talk about what they've seen, gives them a common thing to uh, respond to and go away and think about ministry in their own setting. Okay. Now you spoke there about uh, on a Saturday night, you do a lecture on preaching. So if we can back up a bit and 
talk about your sort of history in preaching. You preached first sermon, 1516. Um, when you went to Cambridge, did you do much preaching there? Yep, I spoke at a lot of Christian Union meetings, so university sort of meetings for students. I um, ended up doing about a third of the preaching at our local Baptist church and mm -hmm. became associate pastor there. And uh, so I ended up preaching a good bit there and, and preached elsewhere. Yeah. And uh, where do you think you cut your teeth preaching? Was it during your PhD years or was it actually your first couple of years at Capitol Hill? Where, where do you think you hit your groove uh, in preaching, find your voice and uh, felt like I'm sort of getting what this is about and, and what I need to do each week? Oh, I think insofar as I have done that, it's uh, probably was after I was pastoring here. I'd started a church up in Boston or in Topsfield, and that I preached that regularly for a year or so. Uh, but I think it was probably, yeah, more the first years of preaching here because I was having to do it every Sunday. And there's just something that happens in that regularity that, that mm -hmm. doesn't happen even with frequent preaching in a situation like I had in Cambridge. Yeah. And what have been your main influences in, on your preaching books or people that you've heard preach? Uh, I'm sure I am influenced by uh, the pastor I heard growing up. Uh, I think I have probably been influenced by uh, John Stott's preaching. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I was influenced by the pastor of the church in Cambridge when I was there. Um, yeah, those are probably the main ones that I'm aware of anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, do you listen to much preaching now on a regular basis or, or are you too busy obviously doing a lot of preaching? Do you get time to listen? I, I listen to preaching when other preachers preach here. So when I, when we're normal days, uh, uh, I'll be preaching about half the time here, uh, in mm -hmm. the morning, the main service and other pastors here in our own staff, we'll be preaching the other half of the time. And then in our evening service, uh, we have other members of the church preach, uh, lay elders, young men who are wondering if they should be preachers. We have them do 15-minute uh, devotionals on a text on the op from the opposite testament of scriptures, the morning sermon uh, that I've selected and given to them. Uh, so I'm, I'm hearing every Sunday night somebody preach uh, who many times who they don't often preach. Okay. okay. And uh, as you're training these interns and young men uh, towards a life of ministry and preaching, what are some of the tips you're giving them uh, as regards reading well, writing a sermon well, preaching well? Uh, uh, well, in the internship program, which is a particular program we have here at the church, the formal program, we have a budget for it. We give them a stipend. It's a full-time position. Uh, we're really paying them just to read books and write papers. And I, and I read those papers. And then uh, this morning, this is a Thursday when we're recording this. So on a Thursday morning, we always have a three-hour conversation based on the papers that they've written where we go over certain things. So we'll be using your Reformation Worship book next week as the basis of part of our conversation, Lord willing. Uh, in that, uh, it's just whenever we talk about preaching in the reading, which is not, not much, but some. So today we actually happen to do two, page 280 to 330 in Bridges, the Christian ministry, where he mm -hmm. talks about the mode and spirit of scriptural preaching. So we had about an hours long conversation about that. 
Uh, and then we have a review time on Sunday evening where we go over the services of the day, especially the main sermon. And there'll be comments made there that uh, would be the most that they will hear self-consciously about preaching probably in the internship. And uh, is there a set of books that you, during that internship or in other uh, contexts, that you recommend to young guys who want to preach, who want to go into ministry, want to learn how to preach better? Is there a set of books that you think, right, you must read these in your preparation? And uh, I'm more concerned about their reading of Scripture and their involvement in the church, their hearing preaching, their taking opportunities to teach Scripture than reading particular books on preaching. Has there been any books on preaching have helped you or have become ones that have been very influential for you? Uh, certainly early on in my ministry, so Gordon Conwell, I read Stots Between Two Worlds, um, or I believe in preaching in Britain. Uh, I certainly read lectures for my students by Spurgeon, but that was more just sort of fun. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And similar with uh, the... Lectures given there at Westminster by Lloyd-Jones, Preaching and Preachers. Again, there's definitely some edifying instruction there, but there's also just a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, I don't know the books on directly on preaching have, have had much impact on me. I think it's more the experience of it, both mm. listening to preaching and then doing it, and then mm. talking about it with these prophesyings, you know, these, yeah. these conversations uh, about a sermon we've all just heard that I think that's probably... Uh, shaped my preaching far more than anything I would have read. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I, I find uh, similar to you that there's just the experience of preaching on a regular basis is, is what really informs your preaching. I haven't always been drawn to books on preaching, though I've got a few that I uh, find very helpful. John Piper's The Supremacy of God in Preaching. It's really grabbed me in my early 20s when I was doing a bit of pulpit supply. Um, but yeah, it's more the actual um, discipline and practice of it and talking to friends. I find even just talking to peers in ministry who you can uh, exchange ideas with and sermon structures and illustrations and things like that that start to sort of influence you, you know, on, on a regular basis. Yeah. Um, you, uh, you, produced two books, the message of the uh, Old Testament, the message of the New Testament, and they were sermons on each book of the Bible. Yeah. Um, uh, is it, uh, correct me if I've not heard this right, is it true you, you preached those as individual books and then you preached those books in, say, over four sermons? So say you did Exodus in one to show people in one sermon what the whole book's about. Then you did Exodus in four sermons and then at a different point, you would come back and actually preach sort of chapter by chapter through a book. So talk us through your actual idea of these one sermon, one sermons on a book of the Bible and then preaching more in depth from some of those books. Yeah, I, if I can get an overview first, I have more of an idea of, of the main message of the book than I feel when I'm digging into Ephesians chapter three. I'll understand it better if I understand what the whole message is. If mm -hmm. I, I understand the sort of three basic parts of 2 Corinthians or of Hosea, then I feel I'll understand, okay, this is suffering, collection, defense, or this is marriage, prophecy, 
you know, th then I, I'll, I'll, I'll have the weight and balance of the book, so I'll handle the individual passages more in line with what their intention is. So I think, I think in preaching through Isaiah as a whole, I come to see the, the central, the centrality of the siege of Jerusalem and in 36 and 37 and deliverance. That's really, I'm convinced that's what Isaiah is about. And all the uh, other chapters around it, all inspired, all true, are all finding their, their focus in this particular thing. So I think I, I, when I can have that sort of sense of each book, then I feel I'm going to do a better job reproducing the thrust of it, whether it's one sermon on the whole book or a, a 50 week series through a book. Yeah. And so is that what you do with every new series? You begin with one sermon as an overview of the book? No, I've done those overview sermons uh, in the past yeah. and even published them. So I, I've already done that uh, in the decade from 95 to 2005. Yeah. Uh, I did all the Bible in overview sermons. And I would do series of overview sermons. So like I might do the major prophets in a series called Big Hopes, where I would do Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel uh, as one series, uh, or the Gospels. Uh, and these were hard series to prepare. But, yeah. uh, you know, once I've done that work of doing, like, the Letters of Paul uh, as an overview series, then it's much easier to go back and climb inside one particular letter. Having excavated, as it were, the top level of the soil, I feel ready now to go back down and further subdivide it and excavate further. Yeah, yeah. And um, have, were there books that influenced you as you prepared those overview sermons, like biblical theology books? You know, see Graham Goldsworthy writes the foreword to one of those. Uh, were there people like that who influenced and helped you to read these individual books in the storyline of the whole Bible? Oh, I remember hearing great biblical messages uh, when I was an undergrad by Ed Clowney, uh, when I was in Cambridge by Alec Mateer, uh on biblical theology, and I'm sure that affected me. Uh, it affected the way I read scripture, but I, I never became devotees of theirs in particular or their preaching. They were just, you know, commenting on scripture in a way that I thought was persuasive and helpful and illuminating, and therefore I myself began to read scripture in that way and would naturally teach it in that way as the Lord gave me opportunity to teach. Mm. Uh, so we've talked so about I yeah. theology by boss, but only because I had to in seminary, but I liked it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I had Greg yeah. Neal, his first year he was at Gordon-Conwell, uh, and man, he's great, super helpful. So if you want to listen to an interview I did with Greg Beal several years ago, it's very fun because the first, like, 15 minutes of that interview, you can find this on the Nine Marks website, ninemarks.org, look for interviews, Greg Beal. I take him in this imaginary bookstore and I run through like 70 different biblical theology titles. Yeah. And I say, just imagine our wives are in the car waiting for us. We're in this bookstore. I'm just pulling out each one by the spine and you gotta give me a phrase about each one of these books. And yeah. Greg was amazing. I mean, <laughs> the man knew everything. So if you yeah. wanna get a quick little We'll take it of Greg's take on biblical theology. You'll hear what he thinks about absolutely everybody, at least as of this is maybe done five or 10 years ago. Yeah. Okay. That's a great resource. Thank you. Thanks for mentioning it. Um, so we've talked about preaching books from a, a broad perspective, doing overviews. Um, so then you decide to dive into a book. 
say, Second Timothy or whatever. Uh, talk us through your sermon prep and what kind of reading do you actually do uh, for a sermon on a weekly basis once you're in a book? Uh, it'll be Friday, Saturday. I will start with the main, uh, I'll start rather with the text to be preached upon. I will have read, been reading it every morning in my quiet time, just reflecting on it, praying about it personally and for others through that passage. Uh, I will start with the original language if the passage is small enough. Uh, I will have my assistant read me 10 to 40 different translations uh, of the passage. I'll note down interesting differences and look at this further in the original language. Uh, by the end of the first day, I want to have an outline exegetically of the passage and homiletically of the message. Those are often not the same. The second day is the writing of the sermon, and I will, by nine o'clock on Saturday night, Lord willing, have a manuscript that I then read to various members who will assemble in my study, five to 10 to 15 of them, and I'll get feedback from them to make the sermon better as I read the intro, and then I go around and get comments, point one, go around and get comments, point two, go around and get comments, point three, go around and get comments, uh, and then uh, they'll leave. I'll, I'll make some changes or not, go to bed, pray in the morning, and preach. So uh, you, you leave it till Friday or Saturday before you even really begin. I know you're meditating on it in your quiet times, but you, you don't really get going until Friday or Saturday. I, I tried, you know, with, with young kids early in the ministry, I, I tried to front load it, limit it. But what I find, for me anyway, when I've got a sermon, so dominates my thinking once it kind of spills out i start working on it, it can take an infinite amount of time there's there's, yeah. there's never enough time so it will take any time it can it can it, it can get its hands on between when i start working on it and when i preach it it will not let go of me so yeah. i've got to like limit it as much as i can i don't encourage anybody to follow my example in this i'm just confessing what i've done yeah and uh it's um what, what do you do when you've got uh, crises that week, pastoral crises, family crises, and you still haven't got going <laughs> on Friday until Friday? Well, that's why, you have, that's why you have my kind of schedule, because you've got Monday for those crises. You've got yeah, yeah. Tuesday for those crises and Wednesday. You've got Thursday for those crises. So you've had lots of time for crises. But, but do you just say to people, no crises on Fridays and Saturdays, please? <laughs> They've been amazingly obliging over the years. Yeah. <laughs> You see, when I was in ministry, which wasn't for very long, but when I was, I, um, if, I if on Monday evening, if by Tuesday morning I hadn't done a exegetical uh, uh, flow chart of the original language on a yeah. in a document, I was by Tuesday lunchtime I was getting stressed. Now I I still I know what you mean. I was still writing up until Friday afternoon, Friday night. I, I did try to take Saturdays off. But uh, you're right, it does consume, all right, whatever time you have, it will consume all of it in a sense. Um, but I, anyway, I just find I had to get going early to try and relieve some of that stress before, because I thought I need yeah. to have an outline. You know, I need well, I, I, think, I think we're all kind of built differently. I don't feel yeah. stressed. Stress yeah. is not really, uh, I don't know stress well. I'm not, I'm not a very stressed person. I tend to be relaxed mm -hmm. about everything, probably even when I shouldn't be. So that's not a big driving factor for me, but I am compulsive and, uh, uh, you know, just really absorbed by things. And 
once I start working on that sermon, nothing else is going to get in there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, you say on Saturday night you've got interns and other staff members sitting there with you giving you feedback. No interns, no staff members. These are just members of the church. Oh, wow. And do, and do they commit to come and see you on a Saturday night to do this? Or are you just I'll, saying if I'll, they... just, I'll just email about 60 people who have told me somehow or another they're interested. And I'll just say, hey, I'm on point three. Pray for me. Okay, I'm on point four. Okay, it's looking like nine's going to work. Okay, yeah, I hope I see some of you at nine. And then at nine, three people will turn up or seven people will turn up or 11 people will turn up. And, you know, and I just read it. I'm not so, preaching it. Just reading it. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, it's, it's quite a... There may occasionally be an intern who comes, but the staff yeah. members feel they, they have to see enough of me. So they, they, they're yeah. not trying to do that. But, but it's an interesting style in that it's very much a communal community uh, uh, exercise for you that you're really getting feedback from oh, people. Well, more than that, I've got, I've got a, an application grid lunch on Saturday where uh, I'll, I'll take uh, five guys out to lunch and we'll go over my passage and we'll fill out an application grid together. And then Sunday night, when we review it all, that's with all the staff and interns there. So, yeah, I, I tell you, a, a sermon for me is, is a community affair. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a lovely thing to hear. And, you know, I often talk about it with young guys going into ministry saying you, you it's what your books are for, isn't it? They're your community as well. They're dead people mainly, but they're there to help you understand a passage or give you an illustration or an application that just opens things up and off you go with your sermon. That's right. you're, you're really doing it with live people. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, um, I once saw on Twitter a photo of your, uh, I think it was the original language and also the English text with all different color highlighters. Yeah. Over it. What, what are those standing? What do those colors represent and why do you do it like that? There's no standard key to what the colors represent. It's just, it's consistent in that passage. And uh, I'm just trying to make things stand out to me, make notice. It's kind of a, just a flow chart, manuscript study. It's just sort of a, a tool to be able to see larger patterns in a passage. Yeah. And, uh, and do, are you disciplined well to start with the original language or at least the English text before going to commentaries? Or do you find yourself, but like Dick Lucas, who said, uh, he said he has to get into the commentary straight away to get some grist for the mill. Uh, he, no, I, I would be the opposite Dick Lucas. I, I would, I, I, uh, I look down on commentaries. I, I think little of them. I am always insulting them in public, dismissing them. All these books behind me are commentaries, by the way. Yeah. Uh, but I use them to help me make sure I'm understanding things in the passage, either that are difficult and I'm not sure I've got the right handle on, or maybe just looking for things that I haven't seen at all in the passage. But the basic idea of the passage, I should be able to have uh, without the commentaries. It would be a very unusual passage where a commentary crucially shifts my understanding of the passage and then thus affects the sermon. I'm not sure it's never happened, but it would, it would be very unusual for that to happen. Yeah. You spoke about an exegetical outline and a homiletical outline. You said yeah. those two things are very different. Can you explain what you mean? Yeah, uh, my preference is for those two things to be the same. Uh, but generally, uh, I would guess four times out of five, the, homo the exegetical outline 
is good as a kind of tool to expose the skeleton of the passage, you know, in the order of the passage, just so I'm seeing what, again, Hosea is saying. Uh, but that doesn't mean that's necessarily the best way to put it across. If I'm preaching a psalm, well, the psalms are often have their main volcanic point in the middle, not in English like we do at the end. And so if, if I were to just slavishly go through in order of the verses, I may be able to come up with a good sermon in English on that, or I may more need to take certain themes that work inward to the middle of the psalm. It just varies. If I'm doing a story, like a narrative uh, in, in Joshua or 1st, 2nd Samuel, or a parable, uh, then there's a kind of integrity of the whole that has to happen, and yet the story can be revealed in points. So it's the exegetical and the homiletical are normally going to be fairly different because I'm asking different questions. Exegetical is aimed at an interested student. What does the text say uh, and what does it mean? And the homiletical is how can I communicate the main point of this text to this group of people right now? Yeah, that's helpful. That's helpful. Yeah, I think um, some sermons that I hear, the, the homiletical floats detached from the exegetical outline, which is, I don't think it's a great sermon. And then the other ditch on the other side of the road is that the uh, homiletical outline sounds exactly like an exegetical outline, like, like it's being preached 2,000 years ago to the Corinthians. You know, yeah. Paul, exhorts Christ, Paul exhorts the Corinthians to, you know, repent of their sins. Like, yeah, but I'm I'm living in my world. That's not, that's not in my world, you know. So I think those are ditches on both sides. That's that's helpful. Um, when you uh, when you're training the interns that you have there with you, Mark, uh, what's your general um, encouragement as far as a sermon preparation goes? Do you encourage them just to find their own way, or do you have a Cornhill kind of approach that they have in the UK? We sort of teach them how to break down a passage, how to set the points, how to illustrate it. Do you have a you spoke about a grid earlier. Are these the kind of things that you teach the interns there? No, the internship is not focused on preaching. It's focused on the doctrine of the church. So what we're trying to do is help them to understand what Scripture says about the church. It's not really focused on ministry per se uh, or preaching even. Uh, it's focused on the doctrine of the church. So some guys who do this internship are going to be professors. Uh, they, don't, they don't all go into pastoral ministry. Mm -hmm. um, okay. Uh, if you were to teach a class on preaching, um, what would be some of the key things that you want to get across from a practical point of view of creating a sermon? If you, if you got the chance to teach at Westminster for one hour, uh, what would be your practical points to how to prepare a sermon? Uh, well, that's a talk I do every three times a year at our weekender. Where I talk about preparing a sermon. Uh, and I just, uh, many of the things we've already talked about, you start with the original text, you don't look at the commentaries, um, come up with an exegetical outline first, so you know what the passage means, then a homiletical outline, try to reproduce the thrust of, this, of the passage in the, as the thrust of your message. Um, yeah, and then just try to be clear, there's no right time, uh, there's no right length, that's the same every time, every place. Uh, yeah. What's the average time for your sermons? Uh, when we're in normal days, not right now in trying to meet wherever legally we can for a week or two, uh, it would be an hour, 40 minutes to an hour. 
Oh, 40 minutes to 70 minutes. And uh, when you first went Normally to the church. 55. Sorry? Normally 55 to 60 minutes. Okay. And when you first took the church uh, 25 plus years ago, is that where you began with that length or did you have to build up to that? That's what I was doing at Eden over in Cambridge. But here I started at 35 because that's what they were used to. Yeah. And uh, you've seen preaching uh, in the UK. You've obviously seen it here in the States. What do you think are some of the distinctive marks of British preaching that you sat under or heard compared to American preaching? Well, in the circles that I was in, I would say that the preaching in Britain which showed more discipline with the text and to be uh, connected with the text and illustrative of the text, illuminating the text. And the preaching in America has been more relaxed, more sensationalistic, more at home, telling personal stories, uh, feels more casual. Yeah, I think I've been in just different circles. There I was in trust kind of circles. Here I'm in Southern Baptist circles. I mean, the two are pretty different. Yeah, yeah. Uh, do you take a full manuscript into the pulpit or do you preach from bullet points? Full manuscript. And do you read read it word for word or do you ad lib in places? Yes, both. Okay. Um, you've been preaching um, 25 plus years there at Capitol Hill. Uh, Roughly, how many books of the Bible have you preached through? I know you've done the overviews. We've talked about that with your two books, The Message of the Old and the New Testament. But how many books have you preached through in, in depth? I don't know, because I tend to do shorter series, and then I go back and return to them slightly longer. So I'm in Ezra right now, doing about nine or ten sermons in Ezra. Mm-hmm. Is that an in-depth series? I don't know. You know, So that's, yeah. My guess is I preach more sermons on Ezra 9 than most American evangelical pastors. Yeah, yeah. And uh, how do you decide your sermon series over the course of a year or a couple of years? Do you plan that out? Or is that something that you just choose as you get to the end of one book, you decide, right, let's do this? Plan it out. And for 26 years, I've alternated between Old Testament law, Gospels and Acts, Old Testament histories, Paul's letters, Old Testament writings, uh, general letters, uh, minor prophets, well, no, prophets, uh, major and minor, uh, and then back to Gospels and Acts, Old Testament law. I've just gone back and forth between those three genres in the New Testament and those four in the Old. I just bounce back and forth, alternating between Old and New Testament, going through the genres. Yeah. And what would your advice be to a, a, a young man starting out in his first uh, pulpit ministry? Uh, where should he start preaching from in the Bible? Should he avoid certain books until he's more mature in the ministry? Uh, where would you start him off? You know, different people are going to enjoy different things and be good at different things. So I don't know that I have standard advice. I would say that when you're going to a church, particularly that you don't know, Starting in the Gospels is a great way for you to to be in a place that no one in the congregation is going to assail Jesus, probably. Whereas even Paul, you'll you'll get some people who say, "Well, I don't really like Paul very much," or you know, Old Testament seem obscure. But you go to Jesus, what can they say? And that's also really good for outsiders, so they can bring in new people uh, much more easily when you're in a series on Jesus. Yeah, yeah. 
And uh, is there any parts of the Old Testament you would recommend they go to? You've mentioned the Gospels and the News. Is there anywhere in the Old that you think is an easy way to work your way into a preaching series? Well, uh, the, the, the easiest books to preach in the Old Testament are probably like Ruth and Jonah. I mean, four chapters tied neatly in their stories. Uh, but then there's just there's wealth after wealth after wealth in the Old Testament. You've got the Psalms. Uh, you've got the stories in Genesis uh, and Exodus, the first chapters of Exodus. You've got the stories in First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. I mean, it's just it's it's an embarrassment of riches. Yeah, I, I always smile to myself. We teach uh, Hebrew, uh, Jonah and Ruth here, Hebrew three, and um, I know that students when they leave, that's what they go out and preach, and I always feel sorry for the congregations. They must get Jonah about eight times. <laughs> And they got the new intern or the, the new associate minister. So I go, here we go, Jonah and Ruth again, you know. Um, we need the salvations of the Lord. And we need to hear the, the barley harvest was beginning. I mean, we need to hear those things. That's right. That's right. Now, I, I once heard an apocryphal, it might be apocryphal, this story that um, uh, Chuck Colson once contacted you asking if you would consider taking on or being a part of prison fellowship. And uh, you said to him, no, I'm, I want to go be a pastor, going to take a pulpit in D.C. Uh, because I think it will have more impact, even though Prison Fellowship at the time had a huge reach across the whole of America. Uh, first of all, is the story true? And second, if it's not true, can you pretend it's true and uh, give us your answer? <laughs> uh, it's, it's a version of the truth. Okay, yeah. So so Chuck had been discipled by Carl Henry, mm -hmm. and Carl Henry was a member of our church. Carl is the one who put my name forward and telling them, suggesting that they invite me as the pastor. So Carl moved to Watertown, Wisconsin when I got here, but uh, I, I had met Chuck, and he came here sometimes, and he pretty, uh, within a couple of years of my being here, uh, as he told me, had sort of settled on me as his successor. Mm -hmm. And he uh, represented this to me in uh, fulsome and flattering terms. And I was uh, just uh, did not agree with him that that would be the better way for me to spend my life. I appreciated the time and I had two or three long times together uh, as he was pressing me on the importance of reaching the educated layman. And I was pressing on him the importance of the pastors and the word of God and how the, the people who make the difference are the ones who are bringing God's word to God's people. And so I think, you know, Chuck was speaking out of the burden the Lord had given him. Uh, and uh, I was sharing with him the burden that I felt as I read Ezekiel and uh, as I you know saw what was going on in the book of Acts. So, yeah, yeah. It's it reminds me of two quotes, one by Herman Melville in uh, Moby Dick about the, the world is like a ship on a journey and the pulpit is its prow. And uh, the other quote is um, from Philip Brooks. Um, if God has called you to be a preacher, don't stoop to be a king. Mm, that's right. And uh, just in closing, have you any final comments about just preaching as a calling and as an as a gift and a calling in the church and and the high calling that it is. Do you have any closing thoughts and comments on its importance for the life of the church? Yeah, yeah. 
personally, I love the study of God's word that I get paid to study God's word. And I, I loathe writing sermons. I mean, I, I hate writing sermons and I will be so glad when I don't have to do that anymore. And I love preaching. I mean, I just absolutely love preaching. So I, you know, I think most of us who are preachers have sort of mixed experiences and that would, that's the way mine is mixed. But Spurgeon said, you know, that if he could not go to heaven, but he could, uh, he, he could be the closest he could be. He would like to be in that state. He feels often when he's preaching God's word. Mm-hmm. And I know, I think I know some of what Spurgeon meant by that. Uh, when, when you can tell that the, the sheep that Christ has died for are feeding on his word mm-hmm. and that, uh, you're getting to, to be there, handing them the food that they're then taking and, and munching. Uh, it's just a huge privilege and a joy. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, not a better thing you could do with your life. Yeah. Uh, it reminds me of uh, Lloyd Jones's comment. I think it's in Preaching and Preachers where he said that the pulpit is the most romantic place on earth. Mm-hmm. And uh, there is something about that, isn't it? When you're there and you feel empowered by the spirit and your words are sort of sailing through the air. And uh, it's nearly like you're listening to yourself sometimes. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe that's sort of what, Piper's getting at with that exaltation in preaching while you're preaching, you're also worshiping yourself. That's right. You're yeah. sort of caught up into the moment of it yeah. all. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. And this has been a very helpful conversation, Mark, uh, about reading and books uh, in relation to preaching. So we really do appreciate your time. Thank uh, you, John. Good to see you. Appreciate your ministry and uh, and the books that you have produced that are a great help uh, to many pastors. I think particularly those two books, the message of the Old Testament, the message of the New Testament. They're a great resource for pastors as they begin a new series to read the chapter in the book on that particular book of the Bible that they're going to start and uh, get that nice overview before they delve into the riches of God's word. Mm-hmm. So. We wish you every blessing in your ministry there at Capitol Hill and uh, pray that it would continue to be as fruitful as the first 25 years has been. Thank you, Johnny. Keep producing the good books, man. And Josiah, keep selling them to us. 